Good morning. There's a lot of people here this morning. Merry Christmas. <clears throat> the, and the and staff, uh, maybe two weeks ago, when we were talking about how many donuts to order, we were trying to guess. You know, being it's Christmas Eve, uh, I'm going to be honest with you, I doubted y'all. Uh, completely honest with you, we were thinking it's Christmas Eve, everybody's got family stuff going on, we'll have a slim crowd or whatever. I totally, uh, anyway, I apologize. I confess my uh, lack of confidence. Anyway, uh, if I, I invite you to turn to John's Gospel, John chapter 1. Uh, this Christmas season, we've been just going through the prologue uh, of the Gospel of John uh, under kind of the emphasis of behold. Uh, last night, uh, me uh, and Ashley and the family went down to downtown Laurel and went through the Prancer Path. Anybody been there yet? Uh, just keeps getting even better every year. Uh, but anyway, uh, as we're walking through, uh, just by happenstance, my sister and brother-in-law and their kids were there as well. We didn't plan it anyway, so we got to walk through it together. Uh, and as we were walking through, me and my brother-in-law were talking about uh, different Christmas lights that we go and look at and things like that. And uh, we're talking about the Lewis lights down in Purvis. Raise your hand if you've been there this year already. All right. So uh, we all go, we, we go to these places, but I remember him saying, but man, we've been going for like 20 years. It's kind of, you know, it's the same thing. Uh, the more you go to it, uh, the more familiar you get with it. Uh, oh yeah, just don't worry about my kid running around down here. Uh, uh, but the more you go to it, the more familiar you get, and the more it kind of begins to lose its it's wonder and it's awe. The more you get exposed to things, the more uh, used to them you get. Uh, oftentimes, the more the spectacularness of that uh, begins to fade. And oftentimes, I think that's how it is for us when we get to the Gospel of John, especially the prologue, is that uh, we've been in church for so long, uh, many of us, and been through many Christmas series and Christmas services uh, that we've heard John chapter 1 taught many times. And what our hope is over the past couple weeks and this week and next week is that as we walk through, that we regain that wonder of Christmas. We regain that very, the very four words that changed human history, the word became flesh. Like in four words, history changes. In four words, uh, nothing's the same again, right? And so I know Christmas has many things wrapped around it, if you will. Uh, but this morning, the, the, we're going to be, it's, uh, the, the title of the sermon is The Word Became Flesh. I want to read John chapter 1. I'm going to read verses 1 uh, through 4, then I'm going to jump down to verse 14. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Now jump to 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we love you. God, we thank you for your love for us. God, we thank you this morning that we are gathered because the Word became flesh, uh, that we gather together uh, from many different backgrounds, different upbringings, uh, but the Word became flesh, and He dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Uh, and God, you have called us to yourself, and we've all been made one in Him. So this morning, I pray as we look to this familiar text uh, that uh, we look at it anew, God, we look at it with open eyes and open hearts and open ears and pray your spirit would enable us to be able to have those. It's in Christ's name we pray. Everybody said, 
Amen. So the text this morning, uh, I'm going to break it down uh, like this. Uh, first of all, we have the incarnation of the word, uh, the identification of the word, and the exaltation of the word. And I know uh, there's a bunch of kids in here, so I'm going to go as quickly as possible. I promise I'm not going to. Uh, but anyway, let's just go. First of all, he says that the word became flesh. And I will remind you what we know about the word already. Uh, Luke, two weeks ago, walked through uh, John chapter 1, 1 through 4, and we've learned some things about the word, the Logos, already. I'm going to remind you that in verse 1, we see that he is preexistent to creation. Uh, verse 1 says that in the beginning was the word, as in uh, the word in the beginning should take us to Genesis chapter 1 there, that in the beginning, before, before everything came into being, he was already being. Uh, before anything ever happened, before there was ever an, an earth, a sky, uh, uh, land, animals, before everything came into being, he already was. Yeah, the, the, uh, the, the, the word there was, it's an imperfect tense, as in perpetually, eternally, he was existing. He was existing before creation. We looked at that a couple weeks ago, that he was, has eternally existed. Not only did we see that, but we saw that he was coexistent. Uh, it says that he was, the word was uh, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And Luke talked, uh, taught us how that word with means as in it's a personal relationship, as in facing one another, that for all of eternity, before anything that came into being that is, in be that, that is here now, he already was, and he was with God. We speak of he is, he, is co he is coexistent with God the Father, but we also saw that he is self-existent. Self we see that in verse 4. In him was life. And what that means is, is no one gives him life. In him is life. So what we know about the word, because he only talked about it in verse 1, then he spends a few verses to talk about the word. And in 14, John introduces that logos again, that this logos became flesh. And so what we know about him is that he's preexistent, coexistent, and self-existent. And the word logos there is what Luke talked about a few weeks ago is that it, it, it was, became known in Greek philosophy, but also really just through Greek people altogether is that the word logos really meant for like the reason or the purpose and power behind everything. So when a Greek speaking or a Greek thinking person reads the prologue, when they see the word word there, they're literally looking at the reason, the purpose, the, the power behind everything as in what what is the purpose of life? How did everything come to be about? That's the word logos there. And so whenever the, the Greek reader was reading the, John, the pro prologue, John's prologue, is that when he says that the reason, first of all, he personifies that this purpose is a person. It's a he. And he, well, he's always been, and he's equal with God, and in him has, he has life. But also for the, for the Jew, the, the word of God had its meaning as well. Uh, the, for the Jew, the, the, uh, is it, for the, the word Logos, or the, the word of God, is God's self-disclosure disclosure of his name, his character, and plans and purposes. And so when we're reading the prologue here, we see this the self-existent, pre-existent, co-existent Logos, the disclosure of God, if you will, says he became flesh. 
See, we see that God for the, for, the, for the Jews revealed himself through what is known as theophanies, these manifestations of who God is. So whenever you think about God and how he's disclosed himself, there's stories throughout the Old Testament where God had given pictures of who he is through to Abraham or Moses. Uh, he spoke, obviously, through his word. He spoke through prophets. He spoke through his covenant that he made with people that God, the word of God, God's disclosure of himself, the Jews had understanding of that. But Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 says this, Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, and through whom also he created the whole world. John says the Logos, the very disclosure, the very voice of God, the word of God, has put on flesh. And so imagine that for a moment. This is like, this is what I mean, we're so familiar with. The very word, pre-existent, co-existent, self-existent, the creator and sustainer of all the universe, the one who set the stars in the sky, the rain that fell just a minute ago, the one that gave that rain permission to hit this roof at Cross Point Church, that God became man. Like the very self-existent, co-existent, I don't think y'all hear me, pre-existent, creator, sustainer, Lord of all the earth, the word became flesh. He wrapped himself in flesh. He took on flesh. The invisible became visible. The intangible became tangible. The unknowable became understandable. He is the the exact imprint of the nature of who the Father is. We have seen him, John says. And here, when you've taken on flesh, just the doctrine of the incarnation, or if you want to get sound super smart, you can say the hyperstatic union where divinity and humanity marry one another perfectly without erasing one of the other. That when the word, the logos, the the, the meaning, the purpose, the Son of God, the one, the self-existent, pre-existent, co-existent one, when he took on flesh, ultimately he became something he had never been without ceasing to be what he had always been. And that's important for you and I to grasp that when Jesus took on flesh, he didn't become less God. Uh, and, and John, knowingly or unknowingly, already is already tar targeting some of the early heresies that would creep up in the first century church that we see. And even John write later in 1 John where we see uh, that there became a teaching that eventually followed, moved into Gnosticism, is that, that Jesus, the, 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 were like, there's dualism as in all evil or all matter is evil and only the spirit is good. And so for, for, for him to truly be God, that he, he didn't really take on flesh, that it was, a, it was like an angelic, like, a, like it was just an imagery or an illusion that he didn't really have a body. That's why in 1 John, when John's writing, I think, in chapter 4, and he talks about testing the spirit of the Antichrist, is that if he confesses that Jesus came in flesh, that he was, came from God, he was born of God and born of flesh, and so that was attacked. And so ultimately, and that's important for us to understand, is that he became, he's fully God and fully man. Say, so Justin, explain that I can't. That's the mystery of the incarnation. That's the mystery and the majesty of Christmas that in that cradle, laid one who is all God and all man. 
he wrapped himself in flesh and blood. And the word flesh there is like the, the whole man, if you will. Which means he became vulnerable and fragile. It means he became dependent upon Mary. And you think about you think about that. Maybe maybe you have never thought about it, but the <laughs> the 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 preexistent, what title the the preexistent, coexistent, self-existent became flesh, and he was dependent upon his very creation. So it's mind-boggling. Colossians 2, 9 says like this, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. So we gather this morning because this very word became flesh. He wrapped himself in humanity. He was fully God and fully man. He didn't stop being God. As I said, the doctrine, this doctrine of the incarnation is the very bedrock of the Christian faith. If he wasn't fully God and fully man, then there is no Christianity. There is no Salvation. There is no remission of sins. There is no payment for sin. So first of all, we see the incarnation of the Word, that the Word became flesh. Secondly, we see the identification of the Word, as in the Word identified with the world in which He created. We see here, it says, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That The Word, uh, not only did He become flesh, but He specifically lived some 33 years on this earth that he had created. That this pre-existent, co-existent, self-existent became flesh, and he didn't just become flesh, but he actually lived on the, in the world in which he created. The word dwelt among us is a, a, a very Old Testament picture of a word. The word dwelt there literally could be translated, he tabernacled among us, uh, which for the Jewish reader uh, would understand what the tabernacle was. That in the Old Testament, uh, that, that God had told the Israelites to make a, a tabernacle and later attend a meeting and inside those, his glory, his dwelling would be with the people. And whenever wherever they would go, he would go with them. And whenever he would come around, uh, when they would come, they could meet him there, if you will. The tabernacle, catch that, contained or veiled God's glory. It's connected, as I said, to the place in which God's glory dwelt. Not only did he become flesh, but he lived in this world and identifying with those who he created. Hebrews 2, 14 through 17 says this, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has power of the death, that is the devil, and deliver us all those who through fear were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not the angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of people. So we see that, in, and, I, and I want you to connect this. I want to remind you what we talked about last week, that in the beginning, verse 1 should connect us to Genesis 1-1, as in the incarnation was not an afterthought. It was in the beginning when God created the heavens and the earth. The Word was already there. The Word was with God, and the plan was for the Word to become flesh, take on flesh. Hebrews 4, 15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without 
sin. We see that he, not only that we see the incarnation of the word, but we see that end of identification that he came and he lived in the very world that he created, becoming vulnerable, being uh, tempted by the evil one. He can sympathize with our weakness. This is important when we get to the end of this, is that oftentimes we, we this may, I don't want to sound sacrilegious to say this, but we just boil down to Christianity that it's just that he came and he died on the cross so that I can be forgiven of my sin and have hope that I get to go to heaven when I die. The incarnation purchased way more than that for us. And it's important for us to understand that in taking on flesh, that he now can sympathize with all of our weaknesses. Like that's, that's one of the byproducts of him taking on flesh is not that just he could die on a cross, but after the cross, after the end of the grave, and where he's currently doing, he can understand even more how to be there, and I'll dig out of myself, but to minister to us there. The Logos became man and walked the world that he created. Philippians 2, 5 through 7 says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, right? Genesis, I mean, John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and he was with God, and he was God. So that's there, having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, here it is, did not account equality with God as something to be grasped, but he emptied himself. And so when you first read that, then you may begin to think, well, when he became man, did he empty himself of being God? No. I think primarily the way in which he emptied himself, because before the incarnation, guess what? He was recognized as God as who he was. There was, there was, there was no one, if you will, no angel, no nothing that didn't recognize him for being deity and divinity and God. But when he took on flesh, emptying himself, one thing that he did is he gave up his right to be recognized as God. He was fully God. But when he, when he wrapped himself in flesh, it's kind of like, you it's kind of like that tabernacle. The tabernacle itself wasn't the most greatest thing in the world. What was great about it is that's where the glory of God dwelled. And so it's almost like Jesus' flesh was like a tabernacle while he was here, that the very glory was still there, but it was, it was encapsulated in the flesh. If you want, there were pieces that we'll see in a second where they, the disciples and others got to see the glimpses of that glory, if you will. But we see that he emptied himself as in gave up his right to be recognized as God. And like the tabernacle veiled the glory of God, so did the very flesh of Jesus. So we see the identification of the word thirdly. Doing well. Thirdly, we see the exaltation of the word. So we see the incarnation of the word, the identification of the word. Thirdly, the exaltation of the word. Look at what John says. So the word became flesh and he dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. He says, we have seen. Now, John, obviously, is a disciple. Uh, he could be thinking uh, about, the, obviously, the most monumental, the Mount of Transfiguration. Uh, but I think, ultimately, he's saying and through miracles, through his teachings, through the life with Jesus, we have seen his glory. That he has led us in to see his glory. And I wrote it like this, that John saw it in real life, but thanks be to God, we see it in the Gospels. 
that this word became flesh isn't just this historical event that we have no record of. But God in his goodness and his grace has put together this book that we may not be, a, may be even in the middle of the, the ancient Near East or Middle East. We weren't there during the time. But this Bible, this word is still alive today. And you and I can go to it and we can see his glory. John saw it, like I said, in real life. We see it in the gospel. It says, we have seen his glory Glory is a word that we oftentimes use a lot, but we don't really talk about what it is. Glory it literally means it's the, the visible manifestation, manifestation of God's character, nature, and goodness. As in whenever Jesus came, right, the word, the very disclosure of God's nature, when he came, it, it, they saw, they saw the visible manifestation of God's character, his nature, and his goodness. If you read through the Gospels, we see glimpses of the glory of the Word uh, through His teaching, through the signs that He, he made, he, he performed throughout the, the Gospels. We see in His teaching, remember they said, this man must be from God by the way He's teaching. We see God's character by the way that He taught. We see it in His signs and miracles. Ultimately, church, we see it in His death. We see the glory of God even in the death of the Son. We see the goodness and the character and the nature of God made manifest with the Son of God on the cross. But we see it in the resurrection. We see it, I know we're talking about Christmas, but I want to tell you that he became a baby so they could have a body, that the body could live and that body could die. And that body could be placed in the grave and then three days later that body could raise. And we see the glory of God when he raised the son on the third day. But not only that, when he exalted him at his right hand, we see this in scripture, that we've seen the glory of God. Could you imagine John there that day in Jerusalem whenever, before the Holy Spirit came and Jesus was there and he's telling him all of a sudden that he, he's caught up in the clouds. We've seen his glory. And we may not have been there that day, but thanks be to God, we have the book of Acts that we can see the exaltation of Christ. We have seen his glory, and it says, full of grace and full of truth. Full of grace and full of truth. The word full of there literally means indeclinable, as in he, he doesn't lose it. He doesn't lack. He does, his tank doesn't go empty. If his gas tank is filled with grace and truth, it doesn't ever go empty. It's indeclinable, and this, this grace and truth, and, and this is beautiful, and I know for a lot of us, anytime we've heard this taught, uh, he came with grace and truth, or full of grace and truth. Oftentimes, I even told Ashley last night that, uh, in Luke this morning, that anytime I've ever taught it, I've talked about how Jesus was the person of grace and a person of truth, right? We've heard it like that. Like he came, he, he loved the unlovable, but he also spoke truth to them, right? That's how we've always heard it presented, which I think that's true. I think at the cross, you see full grace and truth. But the more I began to study this, this is more like covenantal language. Uh, the, word, the word grace and truth there are, are, are very connected to grace being loving kindness and gracious mercy, gracious mercy. And then truth uh, is, is morally con more connected to the word 
faithfulness and steadfast and consistency. And in context of the Logos being the full disclosure of God, that makes sense that Christ, we have seen his glory and he came uh, in, in loving kindness. He came in faithfulness and steadfastness and consistency. This is covenant language that we see here, almost as if all of the Old Testament where God has revealed himself through covenant of being one of loving kindness and of faithfulness to his people at all times, that in the crescendo, in the climax of human history, the word became flesh and what God had been revealing himself to be has been perfectly seen in the Son of God, the Word of God, taking on flesh. That this book isn't just two different books. It's this one story that we've seen in the Old Testament where God began to reveal himself. Uh, he once walked in the garden with Adam and Eve, but then he began to reveal himself to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, and these pictures, and he made a covenant with them. There's these foreshadows that he would be steadfast, that he'd be gracious to them, that no matter what they did, that he would be this. And then the word becomes flesh, and he came full of graciousness and faithfulness. It's covenantal language. Not just that he came in and just loved the unlovable, but he spoke truth to them. No, he came to reveal who God is completely and fully in his life and his death and his resurrection. We see that God is a covenant maker and a covenant keeper. And this New covenant in the Logos. So the exaltation of the word is that we've seen his glory. And ultimately, this is, is that God has spoken by the word becoming flesh. He has spoken, and the only way, he says, the only way to him is through this one. So, fourthly, for application, what are the implications of the incarnation? The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and full of truth. What are the implications of the incarnation? First of all, salvation. The salvation that you and I cling to, hope in, is only made possible because the word became flesh. Think about it like this. We sinned against God. Flesh, humanity sinned against God, right? God didn't mess up. We messed up. And realistically, being there, we're the guilty party, we should be the ones that fix the problem. God didn't create the problem, we did. But guess what? We can't. Humanity can't fix us. So what did God do? He became humanity so that he could fix our problem for us. Like that's the incarnation that he took on flesh. See, two things were accomplished in the incarnation. The very fact that the, the, the word became flesh, two things, more than two things, but I'm going to boil it down to two. Two things happened that an implication of the incarnation is salvation. The first is that he came, not only to become flesh, but John tells us that he dwelt among us. And in dwelling among us, you know what he did? Yeah, he loved the unlovable, but he did something that you and I couldn't, and he perfectly lived out the righteous demands of the law. Just in those couple words, we see 33 years that he was doing something on our behalf that we didn't even realize. See, God is a gracious God, but guess what? God has standards. And no one will come into his presence who is not perfect or holy. 
And the righteous demands he placed on Adam all the way through the Old Testament did not cease when Christ came into the world. They were still existent. But the word became flesh when he dwelt among us. When he dwelt among us, he perfectly fulfilled the righteous demands of the law. Step one. Not only that, but he satisfied the wrath of God with that body, that, that flesh that he took on. So not only did he fulfill the righteous demands of the law, but at the end, if you will, he absorbed the very wrath of God that sin alone deserves. Romans 8, 1 through 4 says it like this. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Here it is, ready? For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for our sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Do you see that? That the righteous requirements of the law may be fulfilled in him. No, in us. That's a great transaction that happens in salvation in his work is that when he, when he took on flesh and in this body that, that started as a baby and it grew up and he grew up as a kid and he, by, actually the Bible says he had to learn obedience. Like how does, how, that doesn't even make, he's, he's, he's God, but he still had to learn obedience. But anyway, he, he grew up and in growing up and becoming a man, he lived a perfect life, not just so that God can look at him, so look at my son and whom I'm well pleased, but he can look at me and you and the righteous demands of the law have now been fulfilled in us as if we've done it. What? God has spoken fully and finally. And no one comes through the Father except through his Son. And the good news about that <laughs> is that because are you ready? The righteous demands of the law are still there. But when we place our faith in Christ, God the Father takes his credit and places it on our account. And now the righteous demands of the law have been fulfilled for us in Christ. Thanks be to God, amen? Like, good news of the incarnation. We have salvation. Secondly, we have mediation. Hey, <laughs> You ever, you ever been in an argument with somebody, like somebody has to step in between? Anybody there? Here's the good news about, here's the, one, the implications of him taking it on flesh, is now he has a, a fleshly body, if you will, not a, a, a sinful sense, but in a fleshly body. Now he stands between God and us. Now he's the mediator between us, Scripture says. Uh, for, actually, 1 Timothy 2.5 says this, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men. And check it out. He doesn't say the Son Christ Jesus. What does Paul say? The man Christ Jesus. The man is there as humanity. That because he took on flesh, not only was he able to die on a cross, but now he can physically stand, if you will, and be a mediator between us who are still fallen and a holy God. That's why the word took on flesh, not just to die on a cross, but to be the mediator between God and man. R.C. Sproul says it like this, Jesus shares in our humanity so that we can be joined to him and thus stand before God. Moreover, it must be noted 
that to be an effective mediator, Christ must be truly God and truly man. A mediator is a go-between who can represent the interests of both parties. As God, Christ brings divine justice and mercy to bear on our relationship to our creator. And as a man, Christ brings the perfect human obedience we need to be reconciled to God. Did you catch that? How can we stand before God because we have mediators? His name's Christ. And he stands as a representative of humanity because he's walked in perfect obedience. And because his perfect obedience has been accounted to us. And now we can stand before God in him. I was reminded of the old song, Before the Throne. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. You ready? For God the just is satisfied to look at him and pardon me. Behold him there, the risen lamb, my perfect spotless righteousness, the great unchangeable I am, the king of glory and of grace. One with himself, I cannot die. My soul is purchased by his blood. My life is hid with Christ on high, with Christ my Savior and my God. One with himself, I cannot die. My soul is purchased by his love. My life is hid with Christ on high, with Christ my Savior and my God. One of the implications of him taking on flesh is now we have mediation between a holy God, and it is the man, Christ Jesus. Lastly, this is the last one I'll give you. There's many implications, but lastly, and we see it in the text here, is that Because of this, when we think about the word became flesh, not only do we have salvation and mediation, but there should be an exaltation and adoration. Right? (laughs) And I I wrote, like, like Christmas has to be or try to be understood and experienced in a sense of wonder. Like those four words again, the word became flesh, Man, if they ever lose their wonder, then what happened to our hearts? I'll go back to where we started. The pre-existent, co-existent, self-existent creator of the universe took on flesh so that he could die upon a cross for the sins of wicked men so that he could be buried and raised again and then be uh, ascended and exalted to the right hand of God. So then in his physical body, he could stand as a mediator between the very people who rejected him that he died for. It doesn't make sense, y'all. So may we never lose the wonder of that. I can't explain it, but thank God it's true. I think one way that we exalt and adore and remember is we, we sing songs. We take the Lord's Supper, which we will in a minute, but we sing this old Christmas song to start the service the kids helped us with. I just want to read a line from it, then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray, and we're going to take the Lord's Supper together. I think it's a great day to do it. Christ, by the highest heaven adored, Christ, the everlasting Lord, Late in time, behold, has come, offspring of a virgin's womb. 
veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hell incarnate deity, pleased as man with man to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. The Word became flesh, and we've seen His glory, glorious house from the only Father, Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. Praise be to God. Father, we love you. God, we thank you for your love for us. God, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you that the word became flesh. God, we thank you this morning. We had an opportunity just to, to gather as your people on this rainy Christmas Eve morning and celebrate what you've done. To behold, the word became flesh. God, we thank you that by the word becoming flesh, you've provided salvation. God, I thank you that because the word became flesh, even my prayer to you now has been taken by this high priest named Christ. And he's mediating even at this moment. God, we pray that we Exalt and adore that truth, that reality this morning. God, be with us now as we partake of the Lord's Supper. God, we think about a manger, um, but God, we know that the manger is where we see his body at first. But his body, he, was, he, was taken, he took a body so that he could live and that he could die. He can raise again. So as we remember, God, may we also remember the cross, the empty grave. And as your scripture says, may we also anticipate. We're celebrating the first advent now, but God, may we anticipate the second advent. When Christ comes again. So, Father, we love you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Hey, so this morning we're going to take the Lord's Supper together, and you don't have to be a member of Cross Point yet. Guys, if y'all go ahead and come down. Uh, <clears throat> you don't have to be a member of Cross Point to take the Lord's Supper with us. You just have to be a follower of Jesus, that you've placed your faith in this incarnate one, this one who took on flesh and died upon the cross. And so we invite you. Uh, to take. Uh, the Bible uh, tells us to, Christ tells us to do this in remembrance of him. And so as believers, we do this in remembrance. Uh, we thank him. We remember. We look back to what, what he's done. We look up in thankfulness. We look within uh, to see if there's things that we need to allow the Holy Spirit to, to deal with and minister with within our own life. And we look around, look at unity. We're all here together. So I'm going to pray, and then uh, after I pray, we're all going to stand, and then just whatever aisle you're closest to, come down, you can grab one of these uh, cups. Uh, and we, the way we do it is we just ask you to take it back to your seat, and in a moment, I'll come up, we'll, we'll, we'll all take it together, okay? All right, let's pray, Father, we love you. God, we thank you for your love for us. God, we thank you for an opportunity to remember you this morning. God, be with us, guide us, may we honor and glorify you in Christ's name. Amen. You stand and move uh, as you're ready.